I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I think tonight that if we're going to get there, we, we're going to um, take a fairly roundabout route because um, the London Review of Books had a a small advert in which they were flagging up this book, among others, and and described it as being very strange. So I thought the least I could do was try and live up to that description and to show how things come in from very odd places at this stage of a life and this stage of a career uh, an accidental career as a writer uh, around a fixed geography. The, the, the points remain. The geography is always there at the heart of it. And the influences and the voices that come overwhelm me and have to be adapted and absorbed. And there's a particular feeling in about operating in this kind of bookshop because I looked downstairs and saw this wall of poetry which you which is a wonderful kind of insulation. It's the best, you know, it's there. The, the, the voices, the people are there, and I want to draw on them. I'm going to start, really, by placing you in a, in a site. It's Mare Street in Hackney, and it's, it's the original village, and it exists because of a lost river called the Hackney Brook. There was a, a river that, that rose on the foothills of Highgate, and as always for me been a kind of underlining or a metaphor that connects up with a passage in Blake's Jerusalem where he talks about coming down through Highgate and following down through Hackney and Stratford to the narrows of the river's side. And this has been like a mantra for me. And I've only recently connected up with this river. The river was enclosed and culverted and became part of the sewage system in the mid-19th century. But it's still there. And because it's there, you feel it very strongly at the point of the old church, St. Augustine's Church in Mare Street, which is where the river crossed what is now Mare Street, and you see it in the old engravings. Well, this morning, for various reasons, um, largely because I'm going to do a, a reading, a performance there with a couple of musicians in a few weeks, I was allowed into this tower, which is all that remains of the original medieval church, which is one of the oldest foundations and a part of Hackney that belonged to the Templars. Um, Suddenly finding yourself on this roof with this 360 degree horizon sort of opened up the book for me, the old book that I'd done in a three-dimensional sense, looking down on the madness of Tesco's car park, on the buses (laughs) stashed up along Narrow Way, and beyond that, 
the Hackney Empire Theatre. The question I've constantly been asked is why there is this subtitle to the book, Hackney, That Rose Red Empire. Well, I mean, the obvious answer in the first place was the theatre itself. It's a symbol of everything that's lost, refound, and gained, and what can be done by, by force of uh, the citizens of a place wanting to hold on to something. The, the music hall, which had been a place used by Laurel Hardy, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Lloyd, all the rest of it, stood there at Foursquare on Mare Street, and it, it went out of fa- favour and fashion, and it had become a, a, a bingo hall until a lot of local people with others gathered together to try and have it re-established as a theatre and music hall again, which happened. And it, it became rather a strange kind of revived venue, this, this shimmering, strawberry-coloured wall with the words empire in enormous letters standing right alongside the Hackney Town Hall, which is constantly being revised and upgraded and had millions poured into it. So the, the empire is there. That was my empire. And also, in a secondary sense, the Rose Red Empire was this, this place that belonged to a kind of leftist vision of the world. Um, the old Marxist that Bernard Copps talks about in his poem, sitting around their radios trying to catch Radio Moscow, a, a place of bloody-minded people who were always there, often uh, Jewish people moving out of the ghettos of Whitechapel and settling around Victoria Park. So it was a particular place, a kind of empire that was, in a sense, lost and overwhelmed by recent developments. That was why I called it that. And standing on the roof of St. Augustine's Tower today, looking down towards the empire, I was also seeing the John Minton cover design for a book by Roland Camberton, who's a a kind of vanished hackney writer who wrote a book called Rain on the Pavements that I chase after in in this book and find out who he was. He was actually a person called Henry Cohen and what happened to the rest of his life and all of those kind of things. So being up there is a privilege. It's a special place. It's a place where landscape opens. And it's a place where I began to think what it meant to be a writer who's taken this on. It's the kind of book that had been waiting for me to do for a very long time and which I'd been picking at since my very first publication in 1970 when I was working as a a gardener and a labourer of various sorts in this borough and and self-published in an edition of 100 copies, a little book with a map of Hackney and all of the stuff that's in this book was there in about 100 pages. So all I've done over this course of 40 years is just expand and become more elephantine, but it's still the same basic thing. You might as well just get the first book (laughs) and have done with it. And I thought to, um, strangely, standing on this roof, talking to an American musician who's going to play with me at the event we're going to do in St. Augustine's Tower, I suddenly thought back to William Burroughs, partly because William Burroughs had been how I'd finally found Roland Camberton. In one of these strange little books that you could only find in somewhere like this bookshop, there was a reference to uh, Roland Camberton, this, this Jewish writer of 1951 in Hackney, meeting William Burroughs in the 60s and recording an interview. And I thought this was so extraordinary. This was the cue that led me into finding him. And I thought back to my own uh, visit to William Burroughs in the mid-90s. I went to Lawrence, Kansas, and he was living there in a red kind of clapboard house. And he had been, for me, the kind of uh, almost ultimate figure of a writer. His life was his writing, despite everything else. And he talked at that time about this 
terrible thing of the moment when he'd, um, in Mexico City in his youth, he'd, he'd played this William Tell game with his wife and had shot her and killed her. And everything in his life, he said to me at this time, had, had come from that. Although, although it was the most terrible thing that had happened to him, it was also the kind of moment that the karma of being a writer had come on him. And it was only when he got to Lawrence, Kansas, and he went to a, a sweat lodge ceremony. Suddenly the shaman conjured out of him something like his evil spirit, which was, took the form of an American military helmet, like the kind of helmet you would wear in Vietnam, but it was winged, and this winged helmet left him. And also at the same time, what left him was the necessity to write. So in the last days when I'd met him, he had, uh, was writing only his dreams and um, walking with his cats in the garden and going off shooting and making paintings. But this thing that haunted him all his life, the thing of being a writer, the duty to words and to imagination was no longer with him. And I thought in, in some senses that the, the duty to Hackney, you know, having blundered through this huge 500-page thing, thing which is called a documentary fiction, was somehow no longer with me either in the same way. It was, it was a book that took me by surprise. I never intended to write it, but it was there. It was worried at, and it, and it came. So being in here and downstairs, of course, I'm rummaging about on the shelves, and I found this uh, book by Robert Creeley, which I've just picked up. Robert Creeley was a, a poet, I remember, in, a, in just this sort of event, coming to see reading in the 1960s, and the way he read, uh, the, physically the way he read, in that kind of Olsenite style of breath, performance, uh, everything was invested in that business of writing and in the way that he read out the words. And I thought this meditation, which he's written on Walt Whitman in old age, actually also suits the case of setting us up to what I'm going to try and do tonight. In age, one is oneself reflective, both of what it's been to live and of what that act has become as a resonance. I'd almost written as a residence in memory. What it all meant, so to speak, what it had all felt like, it was very hard for me to believe what William Carlos Williams called the descent to the ending of life, one must presume. It can ever be more than the accumulation. A literal life must in fact be the substance of a body, the history of such a body in a particular time and place, and the manifest of that locating thing in the myriad ways in which it has engaged and been engaged by the world surrounding. So, so that, in a sense, was very much my take on what it was all about. And being up on the roof of St. Augustine's Tower and looking towards the Empire Theatre, there's a figure in this book that I'd like to kind of call up now because it's uh, an unexpected figure in Hackney, which is the figure of Orson Welles. Orson Welles was in that theatre, in this Empire Theatre, uh, in, the, in the 1950s, mid-50s, and he was directing a stage version and rehearsing it there of Moby Dick, Melville's Moby Dick, which is a thing that kind of haunts this book in various ways. While he was there, he got some cameras and he got some money out of Wolf Mankiewicz. That's a very odd connection too. Wolf Mankiewicz, Jewish writer of Whitechapel, very successful sort of television writer, who also had a porcelain business on the quiet and 
had money to invest in Wells trying to make a film of Moby Dick. So he's got these cameras. But the people in the, in the play, like, like Kenneth Williams, Patrick McGowan, these are not easy people. And the whole, the whole thing becomes kind of disastrous. And at one point, Wells walks out of the door. I should imagine he's had enough. And he walks out of the back door of the Hackney Empire Theatre. And right behind are the, the almshouses, the Spurstow almshouses presented to Hackney in perpetuity in the 1660s and there are six old ladies out there and he interviews them and, and for this film which is an amazing thing to see um, and I think I'll start just by reading a little bit about that because not only do we have Orson Welles who's unlikely and therefore part of this project of strangeness that I'm stuck with tonight but also because it starts in a bookshop um, before we get to Hackney, there's some material that Wells shoots in Paris. Wells drops in on a left-bank bookshop where letterists recite concrete poems. By shooting on the spin and avoiding scripts and letting it happen from a moving car, Orson steals a march on all the coming trends. Situationism, film as essay, the cult of Moby Dick. That's what he was doing in the Empire Theatre. He was rehearsing a play from Melville's masterwork. He was plotting to turn it into a film. It never happened. He did deliver the Jonah sermon as Father Maple in the John Houston respectful and bleached-out version of The Hunting of the White Whale. A single take, that was the myth. After climbing a, lope ra- a rope ladder to the whaler's pulpit, Wells rewrote the script. He improved on Ray Bradbury. He improved on Melville, or so he said. The actor-director emerges from the stage door at the rear of the Hackney Empire. He has invited Joan Plowright, Laurence Olivier's third wife, to play Pip, the cabin boy in the Pequod. He stayed with the Oliviers while he wrote the novel of Mr. Cardin, taking the blight off an English country weekend. There'd been a brief liaison with Vivian Lee in New York, where Wells played Lear for the youthful Peter Brook. Now Patrick McGowan did Starbuck, and Kenneth Williams was in the cast, whinnying about the lack of professionalism and the fat American director's filthy tribe of sycophantic bastards. (laughs) Taking a breather from this nest of viperous egos, Wells steps out into hackney light, which is to say, old stone, anxious about demolition, bollocking afternoon drinkers, incapable of counting their own fingers, late history starting to scratch and yawn. A small flock of greying women, prepped and permed, are waiting at the entrance of the Spurstow Almshouses, a charitable foundation which will very soon disappear in a council-sponsored cloud of dust. The building has been in place since 1666, and time is up. The refuge for six poor widows of good life and conversation was originally funded by William Spurstow, a clergyman name-checked by Samuel Pepys for delivering a very tedious sermon. The almshouses were rebuilt in 1819. The brief report by Orson Welles opens with a general view of the Hackney Empire and its ladies for hire signage. Sonorously, the director invokes the music hall tradition of Dan Leno and Mary Lloyd. We've been shooting a film across there, and before that we've been rehearsing a play. The Spurstow spokeswoman, high bosom, decorated with pearls and cameo brooch, handles the banter effortlessly. I belong to the British Legion. I'm an unrepentant old Tory. 
and I belonged to the Conservative Association, and I was divisional chairman of the women's section for 17 years, and I'm now retired in disgust. In Hackney, we're all true blues. <laughs> a privet hedge divides the almshouses from the stage door, and a few locals have massed on a terrace at the end of Sylvester Path. A policeman in a peaked cap keeps order as if expecting an immediate transfer to Rillington Place. Wells says that he's come to know and respect these ladies and their lovely old house, and he wants us to read the inscription above the door. Settled forever, certain lands in his said parish on several trustees, forever under law. The ladies admit that they cook, but not for each other. They go out to the pictures at the Empire, and one of the friskier widows asks to be remembered to Jack Warner when Wells gets back to Hollywood, because he's a cousin. Cue, big close-up. Orson delivers his piece with deep and growling sincerity straight to the camera. All too often there's another sort of loss involved, a loss of dignity and a loss of the sense of individuality. And that's why I think British people should be so proud of the institutions such as this almshouse we've been visiting with the six poor widows of Hackney who are maintaining their individuality with a vengeance. Well... The second question, after being asked why I used the subtitle Hackney That Rose Red Empire, is why I used the subtitle of the subtitle, which is a confidential report. And this, again, has a kind of double meaning. Uh, One meaning, obviously, is this sort of notion of a slight detective story digging into the many conspiracies and mysteries of this borough that have been there for so long. And secondly, and more significantly, the subtitle of the film Orson Welles was making at this time, Mr. Acardin, which I referred to there and which he also wrote a novel of, was a confidential report. And this is an extremely strange film. I mean, it's like a kind of suicide note as a director. It's a a weird home movie in which the central figure played by Welles, like a parody or a sort of straight-to-video version of Citizen Kane, is this monster who hires people to investigate his own past. He sends this guy out around Europe. And as the witnesses to his own story tell their tale, they're bumped off. And incorporated into it is obviously quite documentary footage that Wells gathered up in Spain and processions. And he he uses sort of girlfriends and friends and all kinds of people like Akim Tamirov. And so it's a a private home movie, it's a, it's a movie with his own friends, it uses documentation, it uses extreme fiction. And in all of that, it was the complete model for how this book works, which I call a documentary fiction. I mean, one of the things that happens is you, the status is, is unclear. Are these real interviews or not? You know, most of them certainly are. But sometimes people tell me stories that they didn't want to appear under their own names, and so I've invented characters and so on and so on. Um, the architectural magazine Blueprint contacted me. The editor said, I, I read your piece in this book about the architect Anya Gree, who's got these wonderful notions about what architecture really needs is not to build, but to just imagine buildings and not to intervene in the landscape, but to kind of create this conceptual reality. I think this is very fascinating. I like her ideas very much. Can I interview her? Will you send me her email? Or, you know, I said, I, I would love to, but I've entirely made her up. And he said, that's very strange, because I met her at a party last week. <laughs> so where do we go? Um, 
the lawyers, of course, looked very intently at all this, and uh, the Hamish Hamilton were, were deeply nervous, and the, the, the main lawyer came back to me with sort of seven points. Six of them were about entirely fictional characters, and the seventh was also a fictional character called Sherry Blair. Um, <laughs> And they were they were said well, you can have whatever you like you know we'll 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 give way on it but you cannot have Cherie Blair you know if you mention her name it's it's death because the whole notion of this sort of um, political control of language and what can be said and what can't be said is there and there, I had this story in the book about Cherie uh, Blair in the legal centre in Mare Street where she's. She's representing a couple of rather dodgy characters and she, she steams into the police station to complain about the way they're being treated. And while this is going on, the phone rings and it's uh, her own house has been burgled by these two people. And when she goes back, she, she is absolutely deranged with rage and tries to headbutt them. So <laughs> this was my uh, totally fantastic story. So they said, well, there's no way you can have that, you know. Anyway, the, the, the Daily Mail got kind of wind of this particular story and, and put it in the, the gossip column. And sure enough, this week, you know, within seconds of this, there was a kind of fiery missile, missile yes, from Cherie Blair. You know, they didn't have Alistair Campbell anymore, but it was the equivalent, saying this is absolutely outrageous. She's never had anything to do with, with criminal law in Hackney, never, never been blah, 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 blah. And the mail got on to me extremely nervously. It went, Ugh, you know, you invented this appalling story. I said, well, actually, it comes out of a book. And they said, oh, really, really, who wrote it? I said, Cherie Blair's father. Because there's a book called What's Left, and I read, read out the whole thing, and it's an exact account of this, which is slightly more colourful than my version, because it starts out... The Blairs had been burgled so often that they were now sleeping on the floor because the bed had been nicked. <laughs> And then the story that I told is exactly told word for word with her finishing up incandescent. So that was okay. London Review of Books, of course, I spoke about the wonders of the bookshop, but the, the, the actual um, magazine, review, newspaper, is not too bad either. This, this week, there was a very strange thing. Why did I use Confidential Report? Why was I interested in Mr. Arcadin? The piece I, I read out to you there starts with Orson Welles in a Paris bookshop, not unlike this for scale, mid-50s, very strange people called the Letterists, who were a group of people who were doing a particular form of concrete kind of poems, extracting stuff, conceptual things that, that evolved into situationism and so on, psychogeography. The most famous figure in this, a guy called Guy Debord. His, a book of his is being reviewed here by Hal Foster in this eminent publication. And uh, the final paragraph, reading it this week, quite extraordinary. The fatalism is voiced most vividly in a scene from the movie Mr. Akkadin, 1955, which Debor would use to conclude his own film version of The Society of the Spectacle, 1973. Played by Orson Welles, the lordly Akkadin tells his guests at a ball in his castle the parable of the scorpion who asks a frog to carry him across a river. Why should I risk it, the frog replies, you'll sting me. The scorpion responds that all logic would prevent such an outcome, for then he too would perish with his partner. Convinced, the frog agrees to assist the scorpion. Midway across, he feels a deadly sting. Arkadin takes over. Logic, cries the dying frog, as he started pulling the scorpion down with him. Where is the logic in this? 
I know, said the scorpion, but I can't help it. It's my character. Let's drink to character, a cardin cries, while on the screen Guy Debord shows us found footage of a doomed cavalry charge. In these letters, Debord is sometimes the scorpion and sometimes the frog and always the cavalry charge which keys up the next little piece I'd like to read very nicely, the notion of the cavalry charge. If you revolve a little to the east from the view on, from St. Augustine's Tower of the Hackney Empire and the classic view down Mare Street painted by John Minton, you see the car park of Tesco's. Now, this is rather a wonderful sight. It's an epic car park. And it marks, actually, the border along Morning Lane of what was the Hackney Brook. The Hackney Brook flowed along there, and what was Tesco's car park was once a series of watercress beds. It is a kind of part of the magic of Hackney that that ridge of Homerton was where all the grand houses were, with their orchards and their fruit, and where Pepys and Evelyn both write about going there and seeing this absolutely Arcadian prospect. And Tesco itself, interestingly, started. The first Tesco shop was in Well Street, just a little further down. And now the market that grew up around there, the street market where it all started, where the whole business started of piling them high and selling them cheap, is itself threatened and is on the point of disappearance. But the Tesco on Morning Lane with this massive car park still survives and is, is something quite remarkable. According to Anna, Tesco's car park between Mayor Street and Morning Lane was the most aggressive and agitated site in the whole of Hackney. And there were plenty to choose from. It was a game reserve for which you had to be very game, right up to speed and cranked and combat-hardened and ready to beat off the professional beggars, the coin prospectors, the thieves, the peddlers of contrabrand DVDs, the confused human relics, the unhoused mad folk, the rough sleepers, the shopping trolley chauffeurs who demand the right to reclaim the pound you paid as security. They were lined up along the walls under the overhang of the roof. They were part of the action, so that by carrying your bags, pushing your trolley, guiding your car, they achieved status. They were honorary consumers. They were like the medieval vagrants, barefoot pilgrims, sheltering against a great cathedral. The supermarket had a space platform glow. where open 24 hours. A thorium luminescence like the lips of unfortunate women who spend their lives painting numbers onto watch dials. A terminal zone for tourists who will never leave town. Malformed pigeons, feathers the colour of sodden bog paper, mobbed the spiked Tesco sign, scratching their parasites on the anti-bird spikes. <laughs> the canted roof was slick with droppings. Everybody parked here, it was free, and the rest of Hackney was impossible, residents only, patrolled, taxed, clamped, dragged away and crushed. Tesco's tried barriers, but those were rammed and dismantled. They tried uniform patrols, but that only stepped up the paranoia levels, the excuse of bloody rows and competitive weaponry. CCTV cameras fed mayhem into offices with security personnel, and they dozed quietly in the corner. The poet Ed Dawn had absolutely the right word for this hectic energy field, a swarm. Drivers bearing away their dietary burdens. The crunch of metal, the shivering of glass, alarms trill as disputed parking bays, doors slam, voices rise, dealers swarm and scatter, the excluded, an oasis, a bright place in the hackney night of blind walkers who decorate privet hedges with cans of fosters and red bull. 
white plastic forks and spoons like the regurgitated bones of extinct fish. Anna carried home the blue baskets in which you piled up Tesca's goodies and she soaked them in the bath. And then she scrubbed all the oranges and lemons in many times recycled Thames water. She remembers in the day when she patronised Tesco, sitting in the cafe section to recover after a hard session of supermarket sweep. An old lady took shelter at her table. She felt safer in company, she said. A lively troop down from the closed hospital on the hill, arm wavers and mutes, the damaged who had nowhere else to go, followed her inside. That's what I love about Hackney, the old lady whispered. It's more of an adventure every time I go out. (laughs) Uh, All of these kind of human elements, all of the excitement and drama of the swarming mass uh, is is what gives this place its, its special and particular quality. But also standing on the roof, there are two ways of looking. One way would throw up Dalston Lane, which is something that's there and not there, just because you see it means, I'm afraid, that it has gone. It was a a series of burnt-out Georgian shells, an amazing theatre space, which was a Victorian circus and a music hall, a theatre, which by the 1920s had become the most up-to-date, most electric cinema in London, with a lovely awning that came out over the street, heartbreaking photographs of this period, when Dalston Lane had a really civic quality to it because it, the relation of the theatre, the cinema, to the station itself, which was there, was, was intimate and brought people in in a nice way. It was a destination in the current parlance. And yet the street was full of all kinds of different shops and cafes, environments, and the, the pavements were wide and it, it was a manageable space within a city. It was a real centre. Well, all of that gradually is being picked away in different ways, in, it was as late as 1985 that the, the railway connection to Broadgate was removed by Liverpool Street Station because it was said there was no great demand for it. But, the, of course, the real reason was of the Broadgate development was required where you're going to create this pastiche New York with its ice rinks and so on. So the station went, this wonderful station with seven platforms, beautiful features, really functional. And then, of course, now with the, with the whole kind of Olympic tsunami approaching... Um, it's required to come back again. So the thing that was lost is being restored at enormous cost. And on this great slab, you have to put up a 20-storey building to justify paying for it. Well, unfortunately, Barrett's, who are doing this 20-storey monolith, have just lost, declared a loss of $250 million. So they actually can't pay for it. And so you, you are actually now having a double debt and lots of the buildings along this stretch, which we can see from the roof, have been firebombed. If people put in for conservation orders or whatever, they had mysterious fires. These kind of strange Russian tactics have hit this lane, which has disappeared. So that's a kind of disappearance and an erasure that's very painful. But beyond it, on the horizon, is this other zone of enclosure, this whole Olympic park. Um, what that means is, is still debatable. It's up in the air, but it's, it's deeply interesting. And by thinking about it is enough to get me banned from Hackney Libraries. So <laughs> in a sense, that was a, a kind of a win because now this is a m- much more 
elegant and interesting space in which to, to speak, although I, you know, I, I do feel the loss because I, I think it's important to, to be on your own doorstep and to, to talk to people interested in local history and writing. And you know, It's something that I would like to have done, but I can't, so that's gone. But um, the exploring of the enclosed lands is, is interesting because in the same sense that the politicians want to control language and control inputs into paper, there, there is this sense of the imagery being controlled that we're, we're given this uh, computer-generated version and we're not allowed to, to take documentary <coughs> evidence. If you go around on a bus tour, you're not allowed to take a photograph. If you wander at the site, you are not allowed to take a photograph. So it's only the version that is a kind of future fantastic is, is all that's there. But nevertheless, the people that are there have got a, a very strange memory and a strong sense of place that, that Hackney Wick was always a weird island um, cut off between the, the back rivers and the, and the motorway, uh, a place of warehouses, but also a place, strangely enough, of the, the second industrial revolution. The whole thing of plastics, electronics, all kinds of post-war industries grew up there, dirty, dangerous very often, but a place of real invention and energy because it was liminal land, it was edge land, it was off the map. And I, I worked there in Stratford in the container loading yards for, for a year or so, uh, which was really interesting, but that's another story. Um, and I felt when the enclosure happened, it, again, it was like the poet John Clare when he writes about the agricultural enclosures, that there is this moment of not knowing yourself because you don't know landscape, that you, you walk beyond your knowledge, that no, you, the, suddenly the things that are there no longer recognize you because you haven't got the same intimacy with them. And if they don't know you, if you don't recognize the things that are there, then who are you? You lose your own identity, and there is a kind of amnesia. So I'll, I'll finish off by um, a kind of interview and a walk with someone who lived out there, a Sicilian photographer who lived in, in one of these half-wrecked warehouse buildings on the edge of all this thing that's beyond him. And, and yet celebrates this incredible sense of the excitement of being on an edge land and, and an excitement of being on somewhere which is like a border. It's crazy, Mr. Sinclair, Mimi said. It's completely crazy. I met the Sicilian photographer, a Hackney Wick resident at the Napier, knowing the work he'd done on mafia families back home but unaware until he showed me round his studio the next day of a project based on Italian cucumber growers in the Lee Valley. <laughs> a well-established enclave who imported all the old ways into Enfield and Blox Broxbourne and Ware. Wednesday afternoon meals at long tables, then dancing, religious processions carrying their saints down to the River Lee, established dons of the green vegetable business unlanguaged newcomers in caravans, feasts for Sicilian pensioners organized by priests and nuns. Like the Sopranos, Mimi said, it's on the edge of reality, superstition, poverty, gold under the bed. They have their own words, like capita, cup of tea. Coolroom, fridge, coolroom, is crazy, Mr. Sinclair. We decided to walk down the southern boundary of the wick to Fish Island. Once it was a place with respect for a tradition that went back all the way to the marsh people who got their subsistence living from a lake beneath the high ground where the Olympic Park was being constructed. 
Among rubbled ruins, scavengers trawled for wire. Conceptual artists furtively captured their incursions or logged signs and peeling flyers. Gold was solicited and empty boxes offered a poor exchange. Fish Island, like Hackney Wick, was now a destination for buses travelling to a terminal that no longer existed. The Wick was the second most popular end stop in London, second to outer service. (laughs) The place that newcomers inquire about. Please, where is outer service? The most often a bus boasts of going somewhere, the greater your risk of stepping into an unmapped nothing, into whiteout, into erasure, a blue fence, enclosing wild orchards, allotments, fish-curing sheds, travellers' camps, liminal communities of students, libertarians, narrowboat people, guerrilla muralists, dog walkers, twitchers, herons, kingfishers of the marshes, all to be dressed with concrete, money laundered with virtual reality stadia, and then returned at an incalculable cost to the recently bereaved, as a thing as it always was. You can have it back, a people's park. Mimi spoke of his life in this part of London. I moved six years ago to Hackney Wick, Felstead Street, one of the old warehouses. The landlords were a group of Orthodox Jews. They made a good deal because I was a photographer. They wanted artists to come. There was water everywhere, Mr Sinclair. It flooded whenever it was raining. It was Wild West. Every day the window was broken by kids throwing bottles or Russians, drunk. Below my building was a Russian cash and carry. They threw Russian bottles of beer. I thought, this is interesting. (laughs) Multicultural. Every week at least, a car exploding. Cars stolen for joyriding. Russians, gypsies, black kids, white kids. I called the police. I don't know how many times they never came. Always cars, explosions. It became famous. While I was having parties, dinner parties, the people eating. Blam! It was like Beirut. It was a great thing to talk about. It was very exciting. 4.30, 5.30 in the early morning, there was illegal rubbish dumping. There were vans. They were coming and dumping mountains of waste. Not one, six, eight. You know when a car has to slow down for a police check? This is Hackney Wick, exactly. It's a war zone. Scary but beautiful. I was privileged to be in the front line. It was an island, Mr Sinclair. It's like Sicily. Hackney Wick is the door to London. It's visible and invisible. There's a cafe just beyond the building, a low cafe, sausage and egg, old working food, probably good. All the lorry drivers are stopping here. I thought in ancient times there were coaches with horses stopping at a pub in Highgate. Here is exactly the same. Lorry drivers arriving from every part of Britain. Incredible. And then the market, the Hackney Stadium market, the idea of a Sunday fair. You have everybody selling everything. Desperate people selling to desperate people. The poor trying to make money. It worked perfectly. Everybody needs something. It's sad to think that Hackney Wick will change without any grounds for change. There's no reason, Mr Sinclair. So many social problems in Hackney. You cannot tackle them by imposing new rich people, city people, new things from above. I've talked to people in Hackney Wick, the very local people, and they have an immediate response. Oh yes, it will change for the better. In a few years, the same people will tell me it's not better. Somebody else will live where they live now, in their houses. They will be gone, they will be lost in Essex, and they will never come back. The bus. That was the talismanic photograph in colour in the newspapers. 
not Mimi Malika, before Mimi began his project of restitution and recovery, the crumpled wreckage of the bombed bus with its visible destination window, Hackney Wick, which stood not just for the destruction of an everyday vessel for transporting preoccupied Londoners, but for the sentence of death passed on a redundant strip of land. Those two days in July 2005 connected the two events indissolubly, the hysterical celebrations of the Great Olympic deal and the response of disenfranchised fundamentalism. Dancing in the studios, weeping in the streets, laurel wreaths for the victors and carpets of cellophane flowers, portraits of the missing pasted to fences around building site stations. It was a time of fugues and forgetfulness, post-traumatic wanderings from the epicentre of the blast. The driver of the bus, so it was rumoured, walked through the rest of the day out to the western suburbs before he's recovered himself. In Hackney, a couple of years later, the skeleton of a woman called Shirley Slade was found in a ditch near the motorway at Temple Mills Lane in Hackney Wick. She had been with her husband going for breakfast to a cafe on Kingsland Road when she disappeared. He was a little ahead of her on the broad and busy pavement. He turned round and she was gone. The coroner's verdict was that she'd succumbed to hypothermia, becoming more and more confused and disorientated as a result of the cold. Mrs Slade grew up in Dalston, it was not clear how or why she'd walked three or four miles across the borough to the Edgeland ditch where her remains were discovered, stripped of flesh, white bones in mud exposed by surveyors of the development site. A passenger known as M on the bus ahead of the fated 30 said that he lost all sense of time and place and identity. He tramped in a daze to Shepherd's Bush. I think the 30 bus should have been renumbered, he said, without anybody knowing. Every time I notice one of those buses, it's a painful reminder. I wish I'd been physically injured that day, because at least people would have been able to see that something was wrong. But that is Hackney Wick. When you see it, it isn't there. And when it's gone, the ghosts of buildings and people and animals begin to recite their stories. It seems that when you write about Hackney, it's the most concrete thing in your life. It is that fixed geographies, that the gravity of the place that holds you, and yet it's also almost like the Arthur Mackin's Babylon on Thames. It's this, it's this imaginary zone which doesn't quite exist, and it is this sort of liminal space. You are between spaces. Do you think that's almost the attraction of Hackney for you? That's what allows you to write, you know, the fact that it's a wonderfully devastating gravity of place, and at the same time, this wonderfully non-existent place, this Babylon on Thames. Yeah, I think that's, that's um, really beautifully put, and that's, that's really true. Um, it started out, I said, you know, my very first book in 1970 was the excitement of being in this, this sort of unknown landscape and feeling uh, enormously attracted to elements of it, partly because it was so run down. It was just like a post-war city, partly because of these uh, parks and spaces and the nature of it. So I was, I was drawn to it from the start, but I never felt really... I could write about it. The places I wanted to write about were a little further away. They were, they were, they were not on my own doorstep. There was the whole business of Whitechapel and the Gothic imagination. The river, obviously, enormously attractive as a place to, to investigate. And Hackney was accumulating and accumulating and worrying away all this time. And I think, you, you know, you've got it absolutely on the button that it didn't work for me. I knew the, the, the kind of negatives, the gravity of this, the enormous conspiracy of facts and histories that had to be dealt with 
but it needed something else. And I think that other thing is exactly what you say with Arthur Macken. It's this notion that went back right through De Quincey of a, a northwest passage in a sense that there is a kind of miraculous path that could be taken out of this landscape into a, another kind of reality or into a different kind of ima- register of imagination. And that if you, you kept circling, then eventually you, you possibly get into this other form of place and this other form of writing. Uh, Macken associated this landscape with Stoke Newington and the idea that you you move through the area of Abney Park, which is associated with Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, maybe if you're lucky at the particular kind of light, at a particular kind of day, you find yourself in a, in a paradise garden, which you're not going to find again, whatever, those sort of stories. And the notion of urban wandering really comes out of this, and the peculiar nature of Hackney as initially a suburb, a sort of garden suburb, fields and so on and so on, and then secondly its industrial history obliterating that and the two things in, in argument all along. The strange thing is that, that our house is actually, although it's a thing of a speculative builder called Rhodes, William Rhodes, who had uh, farms and it was um, the, Cecil Rhodes was a, was a relation of this Rhodes, develops this just to make money. He gets land from London fields and he builds. Before that, this is absolutely farmland. Uh, and, and the kind of weirdness of this, these terraces appearing on this ground um, and then coming there, for me, at an early age in, the, in my 20s and, and settling there and, and, for whatever bizarre reason, staying. And uh, there's an episode I mention in this book somewhere in the mid-80s when some build, Irish builders were in and used to turn up and kind of knock the place about for a few days and disappear. At one point, they uncover this weird arched, brick-arched sort of subterranean space, which I was very intrigued by, but they said, you know, for God's sake, let's fill it in quickly before the council get onto it. And you, you know. So I, you know, I was in the middle of the book and so on and so on, and I said, you go ahead. Well, now I'm really haunted by the fact that I know what's underneath there. I can't get at it. And recently I've been reading and discovering that, that what Rhodes got permission to do was to, to um, set up brick kilns. So the, I think in all probability this is, a, this is a trace of one of the brick kilns that became the first thing on these market gardens and farms. And therefore the nature of the place forms from that. Because it's very easy just to, to disappear into the computer-generated thinness of the version of the moment. And I think if you allow that what you've spoken about, the gravity and the dream to play together in that tension, there, there's uh, an area to work in. The mole man of Mortimer Road, do you think he's a particularly hackney phenomenon? Um, yes, <laughs> I do. I do indeed. Um, I think he was, a, he was a sort of great hackney myth who... who Became, it was nice that he was there and nobody quite knew about him. I remember very well when my son was growing up, he and all his mates just really obsessed by this myth of a mole man because occasionally you'd get one of those great headlines in the Hackney Gazette, you know, mole man burrows another mile under Hackney. <laughs> and and they, they kind of actually, I think they imagined when they were very young a kind of actual, physically, some kind of mole person who was part wind in the willows, part kind of science fiction, who was burrowing underneath the whole place. And then, of course, the, the whole business of this new concentration on Hackney um, through development and so on, it means that these eccentrics who, who are 
were there on the fringe of things, they're exposed and they, they have to justify themselves and suddenly everybody's panicking and they, they do go down and they find there are all these tunnels under, uh, literally under the road that, that the whole kind of zone is, is, has to be wide off. But I think he's, he's a kind of almost a perfect symbol in conjunction with the owl man who's this guy who just fills his house with wild birds and um, is allowed to do that for a very long time with nobody really noticing or caring because those, a lot of those properties were, they were, they were off the map, um, both in the sense that they could be squatted and lived in for some time without anybody bothering too much, or else that the, the council often wanted to get them off their hands. I mean, you know, the people I've interviewed in the book who arrived in the 70s in London and were offered enormous houses on, on Albion Square, which now sell for a kind of million-odd quid, and they, they didn't want them. They said, I don't want this, it's old. Can't you give us something new? So they you know, would, take, would much prefer to take a, a flat in, in one of the tower blocks because it was new. I mean, in the sense that the house I moved into had a, this is in 1969, had a tin bath and outside lavatory and so on. And this, you know, this kind of way of life was anathema. Ian, um, my family um, come from London Fields um, and uh, my grandfather was born in that area and it's sort of it's very much in my... Um, my childhood and in my understanding it's all in my bones really and uh, I moved back there uh, in the last few years and um, and I've been amazed by uh, the developments of Broadway Market for instance. Amazing, amazing. Now really my, my question to you is as, as, a, as a fellow local resident um, do you think it's a good thing that we've achieved a situation where there's olive oil for sale at a Saturday market that no one can yeah. afford or do you think that that's a comfort that at least there's somebody who can afford it and that that's going to regenerate the whole area? Yeah, I don't think it really is going to regenerate anything except property prices, which isn't going to happen either. But on the other hand, it is the nature of the kind of beast that it, it evolves and changes absolutely all the time. Um, I can remember when the market was Ridley Road Market, I mean, and then the waste, you know, the, the Saturday market, the waste was enormously dynamic and I got half my living out of that market and it, it shrivels away and nat- naturally the council don't like it, it's a mess and the whole structure and situation changes. Well Broadway Market for the most part, you know, as you will remember was, was really a ghost it was a, it was a kind of memory of something and it was a memory of a chartered market which was, had the right to be there because of the drovers taking cattle from London fields that had been fattened down so the market was there but nobody had any use for it now of course you've got this offshoot which could be part of Borough Market, and you buy you know, a loaf of bread, a bit of olive oil, and you're 20 quid. Yeah. And this is an affront to a lot of people who live around there. Can't. On the other hand, you know, I'm not going to totally dismiss this, because uh, one of the things that's come up is a bookshop, which has my books in. Um, there's a very good video shop. You know, there, there, are, there are kind of positives that, that come culturally with it, um, as well as kind of horrors that... that a guy with a cafe there is driven out, and I mean, he, he pays, he's offering more than the developers are offering, but they still get rid of him. Spirit, who ran the Afro Caribbean sort of food shop, is driven out. You know, a lot of old, the people that have been there forever are, are, are dismissed in this tide. And sure enough, what will happen next is that you're going to be getting your Starbucks and your kind of generic things creeping in. It's part of a process. But uh, on the other hand, it does create a kind of energy, it does create a kind of buzz. It is part of what happens in a city. And London Fields, which you know, I mean, I, I was looking at uh, footage that I shot in London Fields in the 1960s, 
It was unbelievable. I mean, it was uh, the London fields were used a lot, but were, the school kids were playing football, running around it. There was a cricket pitch, tennis courts on the grass. The swimming pool was going strong. All of that, real sense of uh, an occupied space. Now, as you say, if you go down to London Fields at uh, the weekends, there's like this cocktail party that stretches over the whole <laughs> thing. And yet the, the old thing of the dog walkers and the kind of dog shit and all that stuff is on the same piece of ground. So everybody kind of rents it for a different period of time. And I think that is what happens with cities. I don't want to be too dismissive of it all. I think it is one of the things that happens. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what, what sense of belonging you, you feel to Hackney, in that you've lived there for many decades now, but you went there as a university graduate um, when, you, I mean, like the gentleman before was saying, do, do you feel Hackney in your bones? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't spend your childhood there. I feel my bones there. in Hackney. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's not the same. It's not the, obviously not the same as the, the place where you spend your childhood. You, know, you, know, you have a kind of intimacy, um, which is like a kind of dream memory. Uh, and f- obviously, when I first moved there, my dreams physically were all about a totally different kind of landscape, uh, the uh, hilly landscape of the part of Wales close to the sea where I'd grown up. And Hackney was a totally strange landscape. But over a long period of time and things happening like children being born in this house that I'm living in, you know, uh, many, many, many experiences over years, there is a kind of deep sense towards it now, but it's not the same sense as, as a place that I would have had a, a physical connection with from growing up as a child. So I can write about it in a way that I don't think I could ever... I've tried... One, one book trying to write about Wales and it, it didn't kind of really work for various reasons whereas this is far, far enough away but there's still enough emotional attachment to have this sort of ambiguous relation to it um, and what I mostly got from doing this is, is a kind of sense of stupidity you know that I'd been there but I'd missed it missed all the kind of key moves and I, I, how, how had I not seen this like everybody I pretty well interviewed in the terms of the book, all, all knew Astrid Prohl, who was this Eduardo um, Meinhof figure who was on the run and got a job as a gardener in London Fields and was, you know, so everybody I interviewed had been part of this story. I thought, how did I miss that? And the same with so many things that you realise all this is going on around you, but you're I mean, involved with getting a living and doing the daily grind and being in a place and noticing and not noticing. So... It's been a very good experience to actually concentrate physically on this one place over a period of three years or so. And it, it, I feel more um, emotionally involved with it now, having done it, than which I, instead of sort of <laughs> writing it off, I feel closer to it and more engaged with um, local politics in a way that I wouldn't have done before. Firstly, um, re- uh, something of interest, do you recognise me? Because I am literally a few doors away from you. <laughs> oh, God. And I think it's extraordinary. I don't know if this is, in, you know, just because it's Hackney, mm. but I have lived there for 21 years. Right, right. Not very much, you know, less no, than you. No. Um, I have your book already, and I've only dabbled so far because it's not a sort of bus-friendly <laughs> book. And I've only just, you know, 
mm. browsed. And I would like to add and take issue and agree and discuss lots of things, mm, even mm. a little bit of dabbling sure. I've done. But I just thought tonight, I just wanted to add something because you mentioned Sherry Blair anecdote. Well, <laughs> Which, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe you know it, but I have. Oh. Well, no, no, no. I'd love to hear it. Well, know. only that. I have a very good friend who because is. I find it difficult to find. When I was doing the book, I kept asking people for anecdotes, and you should have come to me, darling. <laughs> but this is like volume volume two is already more interesting than very this volume. Yes, I'm sure you will provoke a lot of questions by that book because it has. Levels, I think, but one of the yes, this I have a friend. Who it's is not a history; it's a, a kind of myth. Absolutely, myth. Yeah. yes, absolutely. I have a friend who is a, uh, was a close neighbour of the Blairs, mm. and um, Tony uh, came back one evening from very late in a taxi, and he rang on my neighbour's door and said, "Have you got some cash for the?" <laughs> to pay the taxi and she said well oh yes I suppose so but what about Cherie and she, he said I'd rather not wake her <laughs> anyway I thought it was amusing <laughs> uh, but yes I would love well, to well I could have, could have used that yes <laughs> indeed you could and made, made a lot or none of it but there you go um, this is a question actually about the, the process of writing the book um, I was thinking about your London orbital and the way that that creates for you an automatic structure. Yeah. What's it like trying to write about something as sort of chaotic as Hackney? <laughs> it, it, it was much more difficult, um, much more difficult structurally to write this book, The London Orbital. London Orbital was, as you know, as you say, very, very simple. Once you've got this mad idea of walking around the orbital motorway, then that's it. That's the form, and round you go and see what happens. Um, the first chapter of this book was not the first chapter I kind of kept starting and realising that none of these starts were the start and it was only when I suddenly felt this episode on London Fields and I'd been walking back from London Fields which I do all the time and someone bashed an egg on my head I thought this is a really telling moment and I'll start with this so and then Kind of once that had happened and fell fall into place, then the thing structured. And I, the only way to organise it was geographically, you know, really, um, because time was floating in and out and backwards and forwards, and um, some of the some of the voices demanded their own space in particular ways. Uh, I was trying to turn interviews I'd done into monologues so that the people spoke for themselves, which was a, a big tradition of. Hackney writing and East London writing, people like Ken Warpole um, in the 1970s through Centerprise published a whole series of interviews with people in Hackney and these, these books disappeared but they were very useful, they gave a sense of a life and I wanted to blend that with things that were totally totally invented but, but were part of the myth as I saw it. I think we were tr creating a mythology of a place rather than any kind of scholarship or true history. But uh, I mean, it was it was structurally difficult and unusually because even though people wouldn't see this, most most of the books, I think almost every book I've done up to this point, I would um, create a big chart before I started writing with coloured squares, and you know could see how things were moving about and all very very detailed and notes and things for each section. So it was quite quite cannily done, even though. It, seemed to be flowing randomly it wasn't but this one I just literally flowed like the Hackney Brook I just 
started and carried on and never never kind of uh, structured it in any way other than knowing it was in these kind of sections and these geographies and so it it kind of wrote me really and then it had a it had a point to stop because I felt when that enclosure was happening and this blue fence was appearing that was the end of this version and there was another story to be told much further down the line of what's happening there and a uh, notion of grand grand projects of all sorts that have been going on in this period of time and what, what they mean and so that's where I'm going next I've, I've got one quick question about Roland Campbell oh, yeah. you, you and I have been book dealers for 30 years plus um, I've never seen a single edition of this person's oh. work <laughs> well, not uh, even in a charity shop Gosh, where do we go to get well they used to float through my hands quite often and uh, they're yeah. in Cecil Court now uh, because why? what happened was people would is that um, because of you though? no no not because of me right. people would, would collect them as John Lehman books with a John Minton dust jacket okay. I mean they, they yeah. had the, you know John Lehman as a publisher would be very collectible I mean he published Paul yep. Bowles and saw Bellow yep. and all of these things so they were very striking looking books mm. and Initially, when, when the Roland Cambertons were passing through, there were two novels. Scamp, which is a Bloomsbury novel, very, very good Bloomsbury novel, for which he got the Somerset Maugham Prize, and the subsequent one, which killed off his career, which was writing about Hackney. He said, if you want to kill a career, write a book about Hackney. <laughs> True. So it was just the two. So that was great. They're just the two. There's a third book, which has never been published or even found, which is a kind of on the road, which he, he takes off for an enormous journey around Britain, hitchhiking. And, and crosses Europe to Jerusalem but the book was written and nobody would touch it, it vanished but uh, um, the book existed physically in lots of bookshops simply as a John Minton dust wrapper nice looking book uh, and I think you could find it then for you know yeah. five or six quid well I, I agree uh, with that now, now of now course they've disappeared. I've talked it up they've, they've kind yep. of vanished yep. but I was smart enough to have my own excellent so so it's one to look out for i yeah. think but it is a good i mean apart from anything else there are these two good and also they're going to be republished scamp in particular which is more pertinent to this territory is he lives literally right here around the corner you went to john king didn't yeah. you and, and they, yes they they said they weren't going to publish no it, I mean, john, john king so is kind of it. thinking about it but there's a okay publisher in nottingham who's actually going to do scamp um, I forget the name. There's a small publisher that does a lot of London reprints. And the thing about Scamp is it's got these portraits of people like Julian McLaren Ross. It's about running a magazine, uh, going into these kind of bookshops, hanging out, how you survive, the kind of migration from Hackney. And it was a, it was a really significant book in 1950. And Somerset Maugham goes to give him the prize and says how much more he likes him than Kingsley Amis. <laughs> And that, that's, this is a kind of pivotal point where English culture changes because nobody else agrees with him. And you so, so you go into the, the, the novel of sort of class and satire and university. And this other kind of urban writing disappears for many years, apart from particular kinds of book dealers like you and me who yeah, chased yeah, it up. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on, hang on. Yeah. Tell you what? about meeting Ginsburg. About meeting Ginsburg, yeah. Yeah, well, strangely, again, you know, because of the bookshop, and I was down in the basement here, and there's a Ginsburg's letters are in, in there, which is a picture of him and Gary Snyder on the cover of it. And I looked at the 
the letter that he wrote to Gary Snyder in, in uh, 1967 in July, and he mentions the filming that was going on, the Dialectics of Liberation Congress in, in Camden Town, where I uh, filmed Vim Ginsburg because I was living then in a kind of single room further up the hill, and I, and I knew this thing was going on, and uh, he was going to be there, and I was trying to get a start in documentary films, and I suggested to the German television in Cologne this would be a great thing to film. And they said, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was completely shocked, and then he kind of dropped dead. So, because I'd written this script, you know, William Burroughs walks into the room, Allen Ginsberg, and, all that. and they said, okay, go, you know, do it. So I, I suddenly had to go and find all these people. So I went to Indica Bookshop, which was down here, run by Barry Miles, and I, I found out where Ginsberg was, which was a terrific house on uh, near Regent's Park, owned by a woman called Panna Grady, and he had the summer house, and I just knocked on the doorbell and said, uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. Ginsberg, you know, we, we kind of quite like to film you. Would that be okay? He said, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, you know, come tomorrow. <laughs> so that was how I met him, and, and uh, he let us sort of hang around with him for a week or so and film, and then he stopped suddenly and went off to Wales and he wrote Wales A Visitation. He stayed with Tom Mashler and took LSD and wrote this kind of visionary Plantoni Abbey poem book. And then he came back because we'd messed up the first bit of filming and it was all black and he agreed to do it again. It was amazingly generous and, uh, and the film was uh, shown on German TV and bits of it were sampled and shown on BBC too. So that was, that was how I came across him, yeah. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.